You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Imagine a world where you're always one step ahead of cyber threats, where your defenses are impenetrable because you see what others don't. Welcome to Team Cymru's Threat Intelligence Solutions. With real-time access to the world's largest threat intelligence data ocean, they enable you to turn the tables on attackers. Transform your security from reactive to proactive through accelerated threat hunting and incident response, made possible through automation. Empower your team with visibility and insights to start defending your organization like never before. Team Cymru. Be the hunter, not the hunted. Learn more at team-cumry.com slash cyberwire. That's team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. I'm a sucker for convenience. Much to the chagrin of my long-suffering wife, if there's a choice between spending a few extra bucks to make my life easier or being frugal, for me, personal comfort wins every single time mostly because I'm shallow and impatient and lots of other adjectives that describe an entire set of my own first-world problems. When the movie theater app asks me to apply the two-buck convenience fee, I don't even blink twice. When the pizza delivery app lets me tip and give instructions to leave that scrumptious pepperoni goodness on the porch without me having to talk to an actual human face-to-face, I gladly put that choice in the no-brainer category. So when I tell you that I think that single sign-on, or SSO, is a first-principle security tactic that is handcrafted for people like me, you'll totally understand where I'm coming from. But it turns out that how we do SSO in the real world is complicated and messy, and how we got there is a Byzantine maze of innovation and standards that has taken us years to evolve. Oh, no! But if zero trust is the first-principle strategy we're all trying to pursue... Getting identity and access management right is the most important first step. After all, you can't very well restrict access to material resources based on need-to-know guidelines from people, devices, and software components unless you know exactly who and what is running around your network. And SSO is a piece of the entire identity and access management puzzle. It has the added benefit, if done correctly, of making the day-to-day operations of your employees and contractors simpler because they don't have to keep track of hundreds of passwords just to do their jobs. In that way, SSO was one of the only security tactics that you can sell to management as a return on investment, as a way to make the company run more efficiently. We pursue all the other first principle strategies and tactics as a way to reduce risk. We do that with SSO too, but it also could improve the way the business operates. And that's the reason I'm pulling out the toolbox for this Rick the Toolman episode. Identity and access management is essential to our overall first principle program. SSO is a key part of that, so let's figure out how it works. My name is Rick Howard, and I'm broadcasting from the CyberWire's secret Sanctum Sanctorum Studios located underwater somewhere along the Patapsco River near Baltimore Harbor. And you're listening to CSO Perspectives, 
my podcast about the ideas, strategies, and technologies that senior security executives wrestle with on a daily basis. Before we had SSO pre-2000s, identity and access management was the handshake process of a user or application sending credentials to a workload in order to gain access. The workload would verify the persona and grant access if the user's credentials were valid. Users repeated this process for every application and network they needed to access. That meant that these same users were expected to keep track of many different passwords. Security leadership blamed them if they couldn't come up with good ones or use the same ones over and over again. We publicly shame those users in annual reports of the most common and lame passwords used by everybody on the internet, mostly some combination of 12345. This is essentially victim blaming and faults people for being exceptionally bad at using what was essentially a stopgap identity system invented in the early 1960s. That doesn't seem right. Oh, no. At a conceptual level, SSO is the idea that a user or application can assert their identity once to a trusted source. When the same user needs access to some workload somewhere, the user directs the workload and the trusted source to work out if the request is valid or not. The good news is that users only have to remember one password. The bad news is that they can still use an easily guessable password like 12345. Two-factor authentication can improve that situation, and we'll talk about that in an upcoming episode. But SSO greatly simplifies the identity and access management process, although it has taken us 50 years to get there. As I mentioned, Dr. Fernando Corbito, Corby to his friends and colleagues, and winner of the AM Turing Award in 1990, widely considered by many to be the computing field's equivalent of the Nobel Prize, also invented the idea of passwords in the early 1960s simply as a stopgap measure to prevent multiple users on the same mainframe from seeing each other's files. By the 1970s, computer administrators used Access Control List Mechanisms, ACLs, to limit access. In the late 1980s, MIT researchers developed an authentication protocol, Kerberos, designed to work in untrusted networks. In other words, Kerberos didn't send passwords in the clear across the network, it instead sent asymmetric keys. In the early 1990s, Steve Kiley and Win Gik Young developed LDAP, Lightweight Directory Access Protocol, a method to make it possible for applications to query user information across a network. Things like, you know, usernames, passwords, email addresses, anything really. Today, Microsoft's Active Directory runs an LDAP-like service under the hood. But in the early 2000s, two technologies emerged that would move us closer to SSO, SAML and OAuth. SAML stands for Security Assertion Markup Language and refers to a heavyweight XML variant framework that facilitates one computer to perform both authentication and authorization on behalf of other computers. OAuth is a competing technology and stands for Open Authentication. Now, according to CSO Magazine, most network operators use SAML for enterprise applications and OAuth for surfing the net. Let's see how both of those work. According to Michael Bissell at NWEA, to make SSO work, three parties are involved. The user, like me, username RaceMan in 99, an infamous internet troll. The identity provider, the authoritative source of some users' identity and roles, like Google. And the service provider, the application RaceMan in 99 is trying to get access to, like Twitter. 
RaceBanda99 surfs over to Twitter and begins the process to sign in. In the OAuth process, Twitter says, Hey, RaceBanda99, go get me an asymmetric key from the identity provider, in your case, Google. Race then asks Google for a key to let Twitter validate his credentials, which Google packages and sends back to him. Race then sends the key over to Twitter. Twitter, on receipt, sends the key to Google and asks, Hey, Google, is this guy legitimate? Google responds with, why, yes, RaceBanda99 is a fine fellow, but, you know, probably in speak, a language that only computers understand. In this OAuth transaction, none of the three parties exchanged passwords, except for the first time that RaceBanda logged into Google. They simply passed asymmetric keys to each other, and once initiated, it's all done without any humans getting in the way. You can try this yourself. Go to Twitter and sign out, or you can use most any web application that you like, then try to sign in again. Twitter will present you with a menu of choices. In my case, I have three. I can use Google as the identity provider, Apple, or I can just send Twitter my username and password, which I don't want to do. When I push the sign in with Google button, Google asks me which of my three accounts to use for this transaction, my personal email, my work email, or my dumpster diver email, you know, the email I give to websites when they insist I provide one. When I select my personal email, I'm magically logged into Twitter using all the steps I just described. And not to put too fine a point on this, but I didn't have to remember my old password. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, I created in 2007, and I don't think I've changed since then. Shh, don't tell the CyberWire CSO. He might not approve. Now, according to Ben Lukovich at TechTarget, some of the more popular companies that offer identity provider services are Google, Facebook, Apple, Fitbit, Microsoft, Box, and Amazon Web Services, or AWS. The SAML process is similar to the OAuth process, except that the protocol is more robust. What I mean is that instead of simply sending asymmetric keys around like OAuth, SAML allows the identity provider to package and encrypt user information, like PII, personally identifiable information, or security groups, roles, and other useful information. This is one of the first steps in establishing our zero-trust strategy. This is how you're going to pass this information around to see which employees, contractors, and software components get access to material resources in your organization. It also allows for more verification of each of the three entities. Rick Howard, security executive, surfs over to the internal CyberWire news wiki called CNW and begins the process to sign in. Since the CyberWire is almost entirely a G Suite shop, the CNW tells Rick to retrieve an asymmetric key from the G Suite identity provider. Rick then asks G Suite for the key. Since this protocol is more robust, the G Suite identity provider asks the CNW to verify that it's legitimate by exchanging asymmetric keys with each other. Once verified, G Suite encrypts a package of Rick's user information with the CNW key and sends it back to him. Even though it's Rick's PII, Rick can't get into it because it's encrypted with the CNW key. Rick then sends the encrypted package over to the CNW. The CNW now opens the package to examine Rick's PII and now can make access decisions based on Rick's role. As in OAuth, this is all done without human intervention. The SAML identity provider is key and essential, and there are many ways to implement it. According to Bissell, here are a few of the common systems that identity and access management programs can use. There are many others, though. They use Active Directory, G Suite, LDAP, Ping Federate, and SharePoint. SSO has taken a long time in terms of Internet years to come close to something that is usable. 
In terms of normal years, though, the transition has been phenomenally fast. What I mean by that is that internet time flies by. We are impatient that it has taken 15 years from the time we got the iPhone, 2007, to the time that we could reliably stream Moon Knight on it from Disney+. Plus. That's internet time, and it feels like it took forever. But in human years, oh my God, it has only taken 15 years in order to stream a world-class movie franchise on my phone. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. And that's the same with SSO. From Samuel's inception in 2002 and OAuth's beginnings in 2010, normal internet users can take advantage of SSO for everyday internet transactions, thanks to OAuth. Corporate security people can create a robust zero-trust framework with SAML. That will require a little more effort in planning to deploy a robust zero-trust program, but the bones are there. SSO is a thing, and we should all be pursuing it with vigor. And that's a wrap. One last thing. I wrote a companion essay for this show, as I do for all the shows. But at the end of this one is a small timeline of SSO history and evolution. Check it out if you're so inclined. And next week, I will be doing another Rick the Toolman episode, this time on SSO's big sister, two-factor authentication. You don't want to miss that. As always, if you have thoughts about this week's show or any thoughts in general, send them to csop at thecyberwire.com. That's C-S-O-P, the at sign, thecyberwire, all one word, dot com. The Cyberwire CSO Perspectives is edited by John Petrick and executive produced by Peter Kilpie. Our theme song is by Blue Dot Sessions, remixed by the insanely talented Elliot Peltzman, who also does the show's mixing, sound design, and original score. And I am Rick Howard. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this preview of CSO Perspectives, be sure to subscribe to CyberWire Pro and get access to the rest of this episode, as well as all past seasons of CSO Perspectives ad-free. And you all know I love getting rid of the ads. Visit thecyberwire.com slash CSO Pro. That's thecyberwire.com slash CSO Pro to explore the many benefits of CyberWire Pro and to subscribe.